0: Well, good morning, Grace family. It's good to see you all. Even though I don't see you all, I've been imagining you in my mind's eye, seeing you there. And I wish you could all get a glimpse of what it's like to be here in a almost empty sanctuary in the midst of worship. I love that you're gathering in homes and being able to take advantage of this because of the wonders of technology, but there's something actually gut-wrenching about an empty sanctuary. It's a beautiful display of how unbeautiful it is when God's people aren't able to gather like this. We gather as God's people so that we can scatter as God's people and make a difference in the world. And I guess this morning is a combination of those two things. We're scattered, but we're gathering via technology. And I hope it's been meaningful to you. I hope you're not sitting there saying, hey, I could get used to this. I really like it in my pajamas, worshiping more than having to get dressed up and go up to church. But there's something powerful and important about gathering like this and the absence of it that we and so many churches around the world are experiencing I hope is actually deepening your appreciation for the importance of gathering in the way we do. We gather so that we can be deepened and fortified and nourished as God's people and your absence here this morning is a glaring example of in this sanctuary where because you're not here. And so I do hope you're enjoying our gathered time in the midst of being scattered, but I hope it's actually increasing your desire to return in just a few weeks and worship among the saints as we typically do. Well, I'm aware that unlike every other Sunday when we gather like this, that the children are there, hopefully gathered with all of you. So I was thinking about how we could start off this morning thinking about the children and maybe having a lesson more geared toward you. Did you hear those words, kids, that we were singing in the song uh, just before the one we sang last? It's a wonderful message from Romans chapter 8. It says, sing with joy now. Our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now. No love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? And then listen to these words that we were singing. Even when I stumble, even when I fall. Do you ever stumble and fall? I remember when I was a little kid, I think I fell down about 100 times a day. I was going 100 miles an hour and I would fall down all the time and I certainly would stumble. I still do. And if I'm walking with my son Sam, he always says, Dad, that's so embarrassing. But it's not embarrassing to stumble. It's actually something that happens to us all the time because we're weak and we're frail and we're just human beings made from dust. And so we do, don't we? We stumble and we fall. But then it says, Even when I turn back, still your love is sure. You will not abandon. You will not forsake. You will cheer me onward with never-ending grace. And then listen to this neither height nor depth can separate us hell and death will not defeat us he who gave his son to free us holds me in his love do you believe this morning that god's holding you in his love because he is and i know some of you children may be afraid hearing about this virus that's going around and it can be scary when things are changing so much and schools are closing down but it's so important to know that even in the midst of very scary times when we become very aware of our weakness and that we stumble and we fall and that we're not in control, that God is and he's our father and he loves us. Just the other night in our family devotions as we finished dinner, I read this passage from this excellent book, Thoughts to Make the Heart Sing by Sally Lloyd-Jones, one of our favorite books to read as a family. And listen to this, Resting and Relying. When you were little, did someone big ever carry you? I bet someone carried you who cared for you. We were laughing after we read this as a family because my girls, when we would take a trip and get home sometimes late at night, they would want to be carried into the house and put into their beds. And even if they weren't asleep, they would act like they were so that I would carry them in and put them in their beds. And we were laughing that I used to be able to even pick Caroline up and put her right in her top bunk. And she was saying, Dad, I think you could still do that. And I thought, oh, I'm not so sure. But I I used to put my kids to bed and there was something so special to them and the way they felt cared for when I would pick them up out of the back seat of the car and carry them into the house and put them in their beds and tuck them in and they felt secure and cared for. Well, that's how we should all feel with God. And that's why this little reading says, when you were little, did someone big ever carry you? Did you rest your head on his shoulder? Lean your whole weight on him? Faith is leaning your whole weight on God, resting your head on his shoulder. Faith means resting, relying, not on who we are or what we can do or how we feel or what we know. Faith is resting in who God is and what he has done and he has done everything. And then it concludes with this 1 John four sixteen verse. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. And I hope that even if these times are scary for you, that you are able to rest in God's love. Put your head on his shoulder and feel his warm embrace and know that he loves you and he's caring for you. And he's caring for the whole world. He's got the whole world in his hands, as that old song says. So... Kids, I hope you're able to hang with the rest of the sermon too, and I'll try to keep you in mind as we do. I can't promise I won't get going, but but we'll see what happens. Well, we're continuing our series. I think it's important in the midst of lots of upheaval and change in the light of events that happen in life that we stay, nevertheless, on course with where we are. We actually had a conversation about possibly changing the sermon topic in light of all the things going on with the coronavirus, but we thought it'd be good to keep marching ahead, trusting God's sovereign guidance as we prayed months, even years ago, about how to... uh, coordinate our time in our series and so we're going to continue where we left off last week and next week we'll pick it up again in first corinthians as we've been going through this wonderful series on the book of first corinthians it's been so helpful to me i've actually been surprised i shouldn't be surprised anymore when the bible's incredibly powerfully helpful in our lives but once again, I was pleasantly surprised at just how helpful this letter to the Corinthians was. I knew it would be because the situation in Corinth is so similar to ours in our society today. Many of the same challenges and temptations and misplaced values were alive in Corinth that are very alive and well in our context as well. But once again, as I prepared to preach this passage this morning, I was so deeply impacted by the way this passage speaks into my life and I hope yours as well. So, let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll leave where Randy left off last week here at verse 14. 1 Corinthians 10:14. Therefore, my beloved, so I want to pause there and and note that Paul is addressing some serious problems at this church in Corinth in some ways i look at this church and i think wow no matter how bad things may get at grace i doubt they'll ever get this bad they had some huge problems but he still continues to affirm his love for them he's correcting them he's exhorting them but he loves them so much much in the midst of it and he calls them his beloved therefore my beloved flee from idolatry that's really as important as any point Paul's trying to make especially in these three chapters eight nine and ten we've been looking at where he's been dealing with these issues of whether or not you eat meat sacrificed to idols and it's really just wondering how do we live faithfully in the midst of all of the challenges where we want to have an impact in our society and we don't want to be like the world but we want to be in it making a difference and that's the exhortation we need to hear now. Flee from idolatry. Don't worship idols. And you may think, well, I don't. I've never bowed before an idol. But idolatry is a matter of the heart. It's misplaced worship. It's misplaced devotion. And so we need to be people who are devoted only to God. And we'll see that clearly in just a few verses. Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So he moves the conversation from idolatry related to meat sacrifice to idols now to the Lord's Supper. And you're thinking, why would he take this turn? And we'll see. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel and not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So what's happening here in these first few verses? Well, I have seven points this morning. I know you're supposed to have three-point sermons, but if the passage gives you seven, we should have seven. So that's what we have this morning. So the first thing we're exhorted to do is, number one, flee idolatry. And we see that anything that competes with God is idolatry. Anything that competes with our worship to God, our devotion to God, our love for him, our obedience to him, our affection for him. Anything that is a rival to God is an idol. It's what we're giving ourselves to rather than God. And we're told to flee from it, not just pay attention to it, not just be cautious about it, but flee from it. Run from it. Like Joseph, who ran away from the temptation that Potiphar's wife presented to him, he didn't just walk away, he ran away. And that's how we need to treat idolatry. Anything that tugs at our heart to move us away from God needs to be run from, not just sat next to or walked around, but flee from it. Why? Because idols are foolish. Idols are nothing, as Paul tells us. They're nothing. There's nothing to them. Why would you give yourself to something that's nothing? It's foolish. There's only one God, so give yourself to him. And we find in this passage that idols aren't just foolish, they're dangerous. They're nothing in themselves. But when you give yourself to anything but the true God, you're giving yourself, opening yourself up to the influence of demonic temptation demonic powers in our lives idols aren't just stupid idols are dangerous idolatry is dangerous when we give our hearts to anything but the one true god we're setting ourselves up to be influenced by the very same temptation that satan tempted adam and eve with in genesis 3 which is the temptation to worship ourselves and our own thinking rather than god and his ways And it's so interesting that he does use the Lord's Supper here as a contrasting worship experience with God relative to the giving of ourselves to idolatry. And what we have here is, on one sense, a warning against an overestimation of the power of idols, but an underestimation of the influences they can open us up to. He wants us to realize that there's nothing in the bread and the cup that that has some magical power that brings us to God. But as we gather as one people of God, and as we gather to worship the one God who's given himself to us through his son, there is a powerful fortifying influence that protects us from idolatry. So we don't want to overestimate the power of just the symbol or the practice to somehow immunize us from the powers of idolatry. But what does happen is something powerful that we can't underestimate. And that's the power of the gathered saints, especially around the Lord's Supper, to nourish us, to fortify us, to help us be no longer vulnerable to sin and even the influence of demons. It's really then about what you do when you're not any longer at the Lord's Supper. See, gathering as God's people, and what a great morning to talk about this. Gathering as as God's people fortifies us. It protects us from idolatry and even demonic influence. We come to church to gather as we do, as we typically do, to be equipped and prepared and to put on the full armor of God so that we are not, not knocked off course by idolatry and demonic influence. And so, what we do when we're gathered, especially around the Lord's Supper, is ultimately not about what we're doing when we gather, but when we're doing what we're doing on a daily basis, when we encounter temptation and idolatry. The threat of idolatry in your everyday life is the reason we gather like this. That's why the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling together of saints as some are in the habit of doing. Because we need, we desperately need one another because we're weak. If we're separated, if we're isolated, Satan wants more than anything to divide and conquer God's people. And so we gather, especially around these amazing symbols of what Jesus did for us in the Lord's Supper to be fortified and equipped to take on the temptations of idolatry and even demonic influence in the midst of our daily lives. That's point number one, flee idolatry. In verses 14 through 21. The second point. Um, god is jealous for us god doesn't just want us to flee idolatry because it's good for us he wants us to flee idolatry because he created us for himself do you see verse 22 shall we provoke the lord to jealousy are we stronger than he We are to be exclusively devoted to Christ because God is a jealous God. That's what he calls himself in Exodus chapter 34. After the people have worshipped the golden calf, God says to Moses, don't worship any other gods. Don't engage in idolatry. Why? Because the Lord your God is a jealous God. His nature is the main reason we flee idolatry. Not just because it's what's good for us, but even more important than that, because God is jealous for his glory in our lives and for our faithfulness, which is the main way he's glorified in our lives. And it's good that he is jealous for us. You know, jealousy, when it's on a human level, is almost always an ugly thing. Not always, because there's something called godly jealousy that we should experience as humans as we seek God's glory and the faithfulness of our own hearts and the faithfulness of God's people as well. But God is always right in his jealousy. Whenever we waver from faithfulness to him, he rightly pursues us. And isn't that amazing? That God who has no unmet needs, nevertheless loves us. He created us for himself and we are, when we are not living for him and devoted to him, he comes after us in godly jealousy and pursues us in our waywardness to bring us back to himself. What an awesome thing that is true of God. It's a wonderful thing about God what else is important here well in verses 16 and 21 it is so clear that we do not have a view of the of reality of the world where the spiritual world and the physical world are somehow different or inconsequential to each other No, we see so clearly in these verses, don't we? That we need to take the spiritual realm seriously and not as something separate out there somewhere, but wedded to our physical existence. So point three is take the spiritual realm seriously. There are spiritual realities that are behind taking the Lord's Supper. There are spiritual realities that are behind all physical realities, including worshiping empty idols, Everything has a spiritual component in the midst of our physical existence. This is so important as Christians that we view the world that God made as both a physical thing and a spiritual thing. And there's nothing. And Paul is really trying to hammer this point home throughout this whole letter that anything that's happening in the spiritual realm whether it's taking the Lord's Supper to the glory of God and for the good of God's people, whether it's engaging in worship of idols, which is damaging to your soul, whether it's engaging in sexual immorality, which is damaging to your soul, or engaging in enjoying the pleasures God's given us as gifts, it's all got a physical and spiritual component to it. And so we need to take the spiritual realm seriously. There are physical realities behind everything. So point one, flee idolatry. Point two, be exclusively devoted to God because he's a jealous God. And point three, take the spiritual realm seriously and see the connection between the physical and the spiritual. Point four, found in verses 23 and 24. And now we'll read those. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, But not all things build up. Paul is repeating the same idea over and over again. It seems the people in Corinth have taken the teachings of probably Paul himself and they're using them in misapplied ways. Wrong ways, ways that are missing the point. They're using these ideas that Paul says all things are lawful. Now, it's so important when we hear him say all things are lawful that we don't think sin is now okay. That's not what he's saying. When he says all things, he means all things that aren't considered sin in the Bible. He's gone on to say clearly there are some things that are not okay. They're not within the ways of God, the commands of God, the laws of God and so there are some things that are not lawful but when he says all things are lawful this quote people are throwing around to encourage what we would call license it's not it's missing the point if they think that sin anything is actually lawful what he's saying is all things that are judgment calls all things that are not have do not have commandments against them or are not commanded in the bible this doesn't mean you can do whatever you want even sin. But what it does mean is in all the judgment calls God's people need to make, we need to not just consider what is allowable, but what's helpful. Not just what you have permission to do, but whether or not it's actually encouraging to God's people. And so here's point four in verses 23 and 24. Use your freedom for the good of others. Don't just do something because you can, because God allows it. Do it very intentionally and strategically for the good of others. He says, Is it helpful? Not just is it permissible, but is it helpful? Just because you're allowed to do it doesn't mean you should do it, in other words. Is it helpful? just because it's permissible doesn't necessarily mean it's going to build others up. It's going to edify them, strengthen them, fortify them. This means we've got to get our eyes off of ourselves and just what we may want to do or what may feel good in the moment or what may feel cathartic for us even, but do what's best for others, always thinking other-centeredly, other-focused. That's what Paul's calling us to, that's what God's calling us to. Use your freedom for the good of others. That's why the title of this sermon is Legalism, License, Liberty, and Love. Oh, we have liberty, we have freedom, but not that will lead others astray, not that will hurt others, detract from their growth. We don't want to practice legalism, adding laws where there aren't any, but we also don't want to practice license where we think, I get to do this, so I'm going to do it even if it's not helpful to others. And I've thought as I've prepared this so many times about social media, it's amazing how little people often think this way when it comes to social media. You know, we'll jump on our computers when something bothers us. and We may even be right in our perspective, but are we asking, if I just throw this out there on social media, if I just vent in this way, if I just you know, blow my opinion out there, is this going to be helpful? Is this going to be, in the long run, what's good? It's amazing how even politicians and religious leaders will have to go back and delete something the next day after they become aware of how unhelpful it was and how misleading it ended up being. We've got to be people not just on social media, but throughout our lives and constantly be asking, is this helpful? Is this encouraging? Will this be a blessing? Even if it's true, even if you're right, and please realize, a lot of times, all of us are not right. But even when we are, please realize that it's not always helpful even to say something you may be right about. So it's not legalism. It's not license either. It's, it's what we hear in this amazing passage from Romans. Let love be genuine abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. This is the only command to competition I'm aware of in the Bible. This is a command to be competitive. And what's the competition? In outdoing one another in showing honor. That means we think all the time, what's the best way for me to drive my car, park when I come to church. It was great. I got to park in a visitor parking space this morning because there there are barely any cars here. Uh, So I didn't have to think about others this morning when I parked like I usually want to. But throughout our days and the daily things of life, are we thinking about others? in the way we go about everything in life, that's what Jesus calls us to, to take up our cross daily and follow him. Asking, will this honor someone else now here's what I want you to realize here it can very easily Paul's been saying I do all things I want to be all things to all people I want to constantly be thinking what will honor someone what what will win favor for the cause of Christ in their life what will be good for them what this does not mean is I want people to like me I want people to think I'm cool. I want people to think I'm great. That's not at all what this means. So we need to make a distinction here. When Paul is saying we're to be all things to all people, when Paul's saying we are to to put others first and always think how they will be helped or not by this, he's not saying enter a popularity contest. He's not saying work hard to get people to like you or think you're cool or become popular at all. That is actually very counter-Christian and not at all what Paul's saying. L- listen to what he says to the, Thess- to the Thessalonians in 1 Thess 2, four. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is... Is witness. You hear that? There's not fear of man in this. There's not being controlled, as he'll say later, by the consciences of others. There's not some legalistic burden I walk around with, fearing offending someone all the time. And you do know just because someone was offended by you doesn't necessarily mean you were offensive. Now that's the way people think. If Some people think, well, if you offended me, you, you were offensive. And that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes people will hate us as Christians when we walk in faithfulness. Later, listen to what Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He had so much scorn heaped on him and persecution heaped on him when he decided to follow Jesus. You need to realize when he says, I sought to be all things to all people, he is in no way saying he became a man pleaser. He became someone who was constantly trying to figure out ways to get people to like him. That's not what this is about. But what it is about is thinking about others for the sake of their souls and the cause of Christ in their life. It means, as Paul says in just a couple of chapters from here, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. And this really gets at what we're talking about. It does not insist on its own way. And it's not irritable or resentful, which irritability and resentfulness flow from demanding my own way. So this isn't being, being man pleasers. This, this isn't uh, seeking the approval of man and the fear of man. This is seeking to lay down our lives for the good of other people to the glory of God. In the use of our time. In the use of our money. In the use of our emotional energy. In the use of everything throughout our days. All the resources God's given you. In the use of your car. Uh, in the use of your home as you're using it right now to worship God with the saints gathered, in the use of all the resources you have, in the use of your relationships, in the use of your gifts, whether it be sense of humor or artistic ability. We saw that the cramps checked in to, to watch this and cliff cramp uses his artistic ability to the glory of god to encourage and bless and I, we have two of his paintings at our home because he loves to be generous with his artistic ability i love that example of thinking about how to use this gift of artistic ability for the to bless others to the glory of god We've been blessed so many times with not just Cliff's artistic ability, but with his students' artistic ability that he's passed on. See, what a beautiful example of stewarding what God's given us for the good of others. We can use any good thing God gives us for self-serving, self-absorbed, people-destroying endeavors. Or we can constantly be thinking, how can I bless with this gift God's given me? You know, as I've thought about this other focus mentality, it's been fascinating to see all the opinions out there about the best ways to respond to the coronavirus. (laughs) It's amazing how many different opinions there are. It kind of depends on the last website you just read or social comments, social media comments you just read about, or what graph you're paying attention to, or what pundit you're listening to right now. But isn't it amazing how many of the opinions there are? And their are opinions at this point. There's a lot we're trying to figure out along the way, and the churches are. Some people are so angry that churches aren't meeting. Some people are thinking that churches are irresponsible if they do decide to meet. How could they? But we've got to see situations like this as saying, wow, there are a lot of judgment calls to make here. What does it mean to be thinking constantly about blessing others, living for the good of others, and as a church when we gathered to think about whether or not to meet this week, you realize what our decision was it wasn 't you know what would I, as an individual or what would we as a ministry think we could could do and have a right to do or be confident that statistically we'll be fine or whatever it was what will obey scripture, and, and give an example of submitting to the governing authorities in our lives, for our case, California. What, what would it mean for us to do that when the governor asks us to have social distance? What would it mean to do what we're doing? What, what would it mean for us to uh, think about people who are especially vulnerable to this virus and spreading it could be damaging to those, maybe not you, but maybe to others. And so I'm not saying we have come up with the perfect solution, but what I am saying is when we sought to do it, we wanted to obey the passages we've been preaching through. And as we navigate this situation in our society, in our church, in our relationships, let's be thinking overwhelmingly about what will bless and encourage and be good for others and be an example of believers walking in faithfulness. Even if we end up disagreeing, can we do it in a way, in the way we disagree, that will be a blessing to others and an example of lay down your life, Christ-like love. So, point one, flee idolatry. Point two, be exclusively devoted to Christ because God is a jealous God. Point three, take the spiritual realm seriously. I'm sorry, point four, no, no, Point, yeah, point three, take the spiritual realm seriously. Point four, use your freedom for the good of others to build them up. We want to be people who live for the glory of God and other people. Here's point five. Don't fear using God's gifts or being judged by others. Don't fear this, verses 25 through 30. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, he's already said you should not be part of, of, of this meat sacrifice to idols in the actual sacrificing of it. You shouldn't be part of it in the, in the temple where this is happening. But if there's meat that you're eating and you don't know if it's been sacrificed to idols or not, don't get, don't get overly concerned about that. If uh, someone invites you to their home and you're not sure if the food they're serving you has been sacrificed to idols, that's okay. That food doesn't have any spiritual, magical power that's gonna hurt you. Don't be afraid of those things, he says. If an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go eat whatever's set before you on the ground of conscience. This is interesting. This is if a believer get invite, gets invited to the home of one of the pagans in Corinth. Don't, don't overly scrutinize. Don't shift the dynamic from gospel advancement in the life of this unbeliever you're with for the sake of, uh, of quibbling over where the meat came from. The meat doesn't have any power in itself. Go ahead and eat whatever is served to you. You know, as I thought about this, I thought, how many of us even have the problem of being invited to the homes of unbelievers? <laughs> You know, I was thinking, wow, maybe this isn't really a problem for us. Maybe we don't put ourselves in environments where this sort of challenge even is something we have to encounter. Maybe we've insulated ourselves so much from the outside world that we don't have this sort of challenge that these Corinthian believers had. You know, almost all of them, if not all of them, were adult converts. And they had all of these people in their lives and they're trying to figure out how do I stay faithful to Jesus and at the same time have an influence for good in the lives of my unsaved friends. It was quite convicting to me when I thought about uh, how many unbelievers we have at our dinner table or how many dinner tables of unbelievers we're at. We have some in our life, but I would like to see that increase for our family and perhaps yours as well. And so don't fear using God's gifts that you'll be judged. I love that quotation from Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Oh, Paul is saying, don't fear the the world, the physical realm. Don't, Don't walk through life with fear that you might mess up by doing something wrong. Oh, you can go boldly into your life, making these judgment calls, confident that God made everything. And how you act when you're invited to a meal with an unbeliever doesn't have to be something you're anxious about. Don't fear God's gifts. God's good and wise and powerful and he made everything. And Satan can only counterfeit things. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. I love that. It's all from God. Listen to what he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.17. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We have a beautiful array of gifts from God. And we don't walk through life fearing messing up when we engage with God's good gifts. The church has had a problem with this as Corinth did. And as we still can today, we think, wow, I get in trouble using God's gifts, whether it's food or sex or earthly pleasures of any kind. And so maybe just swearing off all of it, maybe just not even engaging in this is the best thing. And they were having this problem with with license and legalism in Corinth, and we still can have that problem today. But we don't need to fear and we don't need to fear being judged by another's conscience either. So in the midst of living for the good of others, we also don't fear being judged by others. Listen to Romans 14, five. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now there is an objectivity to God's clear truth and laws and ways. But in these judgment calls of life, there is a subjectivity to it. There is a relativity to these kinds of judgment calls. And as we make these as God's people, we need patience and grace and deference in bearing with one another, in forbearance, not fearing either the world or being judged. And I just love where Paul concludes these three chapters we've been looking at, this whole discussion. It's just so helpful to me. As I've studied these passages, I've thought, wow, being faithful in the Christian life can be so complicated, so complex. And I said this last time I preached in in chapter eight, Uh, nothing has surprised me more about being in ministry and a leader in the church than how many judgment calls God gives his people to make along the way of what it's supposed to look like to be faithful in our Christ-like generosity, in our thinking about others, in our carrying out of church discipline and our daily decisions about how to best care for God's people and be a witness to the world. God hasn't laid out all these detailed instructions about what these big principles look like most of the time. It's up to us as we gather as God's people and pray and fast and argue and discuss and seek God to get to the conclusion where we say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us and we move ahead. Not so consumed with mistakes we might be making or have clearly made in the past, but moving ahead. Remember a football player, I know he used to say, man, I can't think about the messed up last play or else I won't be ready for the next play. And that's how we need to be thinking. We, we can't live in regret and, and fear and doubt. We need to, need to move ahead. And the way Paul brings clarity to all of this, in the midst of feeling, wow, I'm worn out with figuring out what this should look like. I love the focus. It's so freeing. And here's point seven. I, I'm sorry, point six. <laughs> yes, for those of you who are counting verses thirty one and thirty two do everything for the glory of God. Listen to points 31, thirty, and 30 uh, verses thirty and thirty one If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks see he 's not beholden by a conscience of another, and it 's almost as if he said, "Wow, this is really complicated sometimes and hard to figure out, so I need to help them be free." in focus. And the focus is this, verse 31. It's almost as as if he's gotten to the end of it all. And he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, (laughs) do all to the glory of God. Oh, I love that. Whatever you do if you do it out of a heart of gratitude, if you do it for the glory of God, if you want nothing more in all your decisions, your use of your gifts, your enjoyment of pleasures, your interactions with people, in your expression of freedom or your voluntary limitation of expressing your freedoms, whatever it is, if you're doing it so that God will be honored, it won't be perfect, but God will be honored. And God will be pleased and he'll be glorified. And what does that mean? It means seeing God in all of his glory, all the beauty of his character. And then in response to that, glorifying him with daily obedience and other focus. Living for the glory of God by living for the good of others. And he's saying, connect your pursuit of God's glory in your life for the good of others in your life. That's the primary way we glorify God with our lives, by loving the God that we love and worshiping him by loving people made in his image. That's why Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he says, neighbor love. The great commandment is really what's going on here. James says, don't curse people made in the likeness of God when you bless your Lord with that same mouth. John says in 1 John 4, if you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. You must love your brother who you can see if you're ever going to be actually loving the God you can't see. The glory of God is seen most clearly in the face of Christ. And that's point number seven. How do we do this? Well, we follow good examples like Paul and like godly people in our lives. And we follow Jesus by following examples and setting examples. And here's our last point in our last verse. Number seven, 11.1. It's really unfortunate there's a chapter division here. There should not be. If I had my way, I'd move it. But I don't have my way. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, he's picking up where Randy's sermon focused us last week. Paul actually holds himself up as an example of someone who is living and other focused, pour out his life like a drink offering, do whatever it would, would, it would be helpful, even if it cost him dearly for the good of others in the glory of God. Verse 11, one, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This isn't the only time he says that. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. He says, Timothy, set an example for the believers. And that's our last point. Set an example for the believers of someone who's following Christ. He says to Timothy, show yourself an example to those who believe. And that's that's what all this is adding up to. When we follow Jesus, we also follow examples and we see ourselves as examples for others to follow. I want you, dear saints at Grace, to be able to look at my life and not see perfection. For none of us is that true until we see Jesus face to face. But I I want you to be able to look at my life and seeing the general pattern, the, the tenor, the trajectory of my life, and be able to hear me say, follow me as I follow Christ and see integrity in that. And I want you to be able to say that as well. And it doesn't mean perfection. Actually, one of the ways you can be the best example is in the way you repent well and ask for forgiveness well when you're not perfect and when sometimes you fail miserably. But, but big picture, can we say, follow me as I follow Christ? Be imitators of me. This isn't just for apostles like Paul. This isn't just for pastors in the first century like Timothy. This is for all God's people who should set an example for the believers. We have got to be men and women who see our lives as a display, a a painting, a picture that God is giving believers in the church and the world, the watching world, a beautiful example of Christ's love. And this is one of the best ways for your own growth to accelerate. Until I saw myself as responsible to be an example in the lives of other people. I didn't grow as much as I would have. There's, there's, I guess we shouldn't theoretically need this to grow because enjoying God should be enough, but there's something powerfully helpful about realizing that I am called and have the privilege to be an example and a minister to others. And nothing brings this home like having children. It brings great delight to my heart when I will hear one of my children pray in a way I know that he or she learned to pray from somebody in our children's ministry or see them live in ways that Donna and I have sought to, to be an example to them. But nothing's more disturbing to me than when I hear my child talk to their sibling in a way and I can hear my own voice in that. And I'm tempted to say, who taught you to talk that way? And then I think, well, I know who. I did. <laughs> and I, we have an amazing privilege of being a good example or a bad example. And the example we ultimately follow is the example of Christ. And that's what brings perfect clarity to this. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 15 in just a few weeks. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's what Jesus did. He lays down his life. He did not consider his own interests, but the interests of others. It's the Philippians 2 way of living. Not living out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with Humility, live for the good of others to the glory of God. And that means, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, having the mind of Christ, who although he was in very nature God, did not consider equality as God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And taking the form of a servant and being made in human likeness, he was crucified in our place died in our place gave the ultimate self-sacrifice for our good in the glory of God and that's what the good of others ultimately is for us living lives that look like Jesus laying down our lives in daily often unnoticed ways because we want to give an example ultimately of the way Jesus loves us he's our ultimate example And he's our ultimate sacrifice. He's the one who provided for us like we desperately needed him to and we could never provide for ourselves. That's what this all gets to. You know what? You see how he ends this. Verse 33. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. See, that's the point. That in in our lives, they will see a glimpse of who Jesus is. Through our words, they will see the love of Christ in a self-sacrificial way. Through our daily living, we will be an example, a witness, a testimony of who Jesus is, not so that they will ultimately be drawn to us, but redirected from us to the Savior, who is the one who gave himself, and so that they will be saved, the good of others way more than anything else is their salvation that's why this can't be about the fear of man but the good of others knowing what is best for them is knowing that jesus blood and righteousness his resurrection life he provides by faith in him is what we ultimately want because we ultimately do want the good of others to the glory of god Let's pray. Lord, help us to live for the good of others, ultimately to your glory. Thank you for this very old letter that couldn't be more relevant in our lives. Lord, I'm thankful for the saints scattered this morning, but gathered in smaller groups and homes. And I pray, Lord, that you would be working powerfully in our lives, helping us to understand these things better and living them out more consistently on a daily basis. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.